Thank you, Ben. We appreciate so much the opportunity to be together tonight. It is a messy night, but we are grateful that we have the opportunity to come together to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're going to be looking tonight at Luke chapter 1 as we think about those things that are most surely believed. Let me just read for you again what Luke recorded as we think about those things that we believe. Luke said, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. There are things that we believe. There are no uncertainties, no hesitations, no questions in our mind. There are rock-solid truths that each and every one of us believe. We believe these truths because God, through his word, has told us about them. And really, in light of this, it stands to reason that we put our trust in what we call the inspiration of Scripture. The word that we hold in our hands, the Bible, is not a product of mankind. But rather, Peter said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There are things about Jesus that are recorded for us in the Scriptures. Now, I understand that historically speaking, we can look outside of Scripture and we can learn a lot about the man called Jesus. But what is recorded in this book that we call the Bible? These are truths that we believe with all of our heart, soul, and mind. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he would say, I know whom I have believed. I want to ask you a question tonight. Are there things about Jesus that you believe that are non-negotiable? You believe them with all of your heart. Peter, on another occasion, said, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts always. And he said, Be ready to give an answer or a defense of your faith. In other words, those things that you believe. Can you do that? If someone were to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Let's just say a friend, a co-worker, a family member were to stop you and just put you on the spot. What is it that makes Jesus so special to you? You talk a lot about him. What do you believe about Jesus? Let me just share with you some things that I believe about Jesus. Things that in my mind are most assuredly believed. Let me begin by saying I believe in the virgin birth. And I believe you believe that. You know, the Bible talks a lot about the redemptive plan of Almighty God. 
the fact that Jesus came into the world. And we understand that Jesus is not a created being, that he is preexistent. That is, he has always existed. He existed before he took upon himself human flesh. But in order to redeem the world, God needed his son, the second member of the Godhead, to come to earth. In order for him to accomplish this, it would require a human body. And so the Bible tells us in the Old Testament about God's plans to bring the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, into the world. Now back in Genesis chapter 3, we read of Adam and Eve transgressing the law of God in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned in the garden, death entered the world. First, there was spiritual death, separation from Almighty God. That's the reason why in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God set forth the promised seed to intervene on behalf of fallen humanity. But nonetheless, man died spiritually, but also physically. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, tells us that by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So, God began unveiling his redemptive plan. And you can trace that seed line down to the coming of Jesus. In order for Christ to come into the world, God needed a mother. And so he chose a woman by the name of Mary. But some 700, 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth, Isaiah the statesman prophet foretold of the virgin birth. He said, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. He said, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He shall be called Emmanuel. That's in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In chapter 9 at verse 6, he would ascribe to the Christ, the Messiah, the terms wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus would come through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, of course, would have 12 sons. Out of those 12 sons would emerge 12 tribes. Jesus would descend through the tribe of Judah, and then later through the family of David. He would and does occupy a throne today, a spiritual throne. He sits upon the throne of David. And you can read of that in Acts chapter 2. Matthew, when he began his account narrating the life of Jesus, in chapter 1 he begins by giving us the seed line of the royal king. That is Jesus. And he would tell us that that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. He said, she shall bring forth a son. His name shall be called Jesus. And then he said, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. But if you look at Matthew chapter 1, 
Matthew said that all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. Jesus was no ordinary human being. He was the son of God. God incarnate. We've looked before at John chapter 1, where John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. But in verse 14 he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In order for Jesus to fulfill the will of Almighty God, a body had to be prepared for him. And that's what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 10. He said, sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body you have prepared for me. A quotation from the Old Testament. Foretelling of the body that would be woven or prepared for Jesus in the womb of Mary. So when people ask me, do you believe in the virgin birth? My answer is yes, absolutely. I believe that God sent his only begotten son into the world and that Jesus had a human mother and a divine father. That divine father, of course, being God, the father, the first member of the Godhead. There's a second thing I want you to see in our study. And that is when we talk about Jesus and those things that we most surely believe, I want to suggest to you that I believe in the virtuous life of Jesus. I said a minute ago, Jesus was no ordinary man. One of the things that separates Jesus from the human family is summed up in the fact that he never sinned. I can't imagine someone living on planet earth and not succumbing to temptation. And yet Jesus was, as the Hebrew writer said, tempted in all points like as we are. And yet the writer said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he was without sin. His character was sterling. I mean, when you begin to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there were many, many critics of Jesus, weren't there? Some very religious people. They did everything within their power, everything in their power to discredit him, to destroy him, to smear his good name. I mean, they took him on and sought in many ways to destroy his good name. And yet, the beauty of Jesus is they couldn't do it. In Luke chapter 4, as well as in Matthew chapter 4, the account is told of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And there he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says the tempter came to him, tempting him. Three very specific temptations posed to Jesus. Beginning with, if you are the Son of God, Jesus was the son of God. The very idea that the devil would begin by making such a statement. If you're the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Jesus said, it is written 
The source of his strength over temptation was scripture. Jesus responded three times to the devil by saying, it is written. You need to understand that though Jesus was tempted here upon this earth, and though we have three very specific temptations spoken of by Matthew as well as Luke, the devil tempted him on other occasions. How do I know that? Well, in Luke chapter 4, the Bible tells us that when Jesus succeeded in overcoming the temptations posed him by the devil, that the tempter left him until an opportune time. In other words, he was coming back. The devil would, would have liked nothing more to have thwarted the redemptive plan of God, to get Jesus to sell out or bail out of his redemptive work. And yet Jesus would say on more than one occasion that he came to fulfill the will of his Father in heaven. In John chapter 17, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What about the sinless Son of God? Sinless in word, sinless in deed. A lot of great things have been said about Jesus. And there have been, as I said a moment ago, many, many people that have tried to discredit him. Some have done everything within their power to destroy his influence. And yet his shining and sterling character lives on. Many, many people have been influenced by him. You see, Jesus was the sinless son of God. He was the spotless lamb of God. In the Old Testament, when God instituted the Passover back in Exodus chapter 12, the Israelite people were to take a lamb without spot or without blemish. Not just any lamb, but the best. Well, Jesus, according to Paul, is our Passover lamb. And he was, as we would say, the best of the best. He was God's finest. God went, well, let me just say it like this. God spared no expense in saving us from sin. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, for even hereunto were you called that Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And then he said, who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter would tell us that we have been redeemed not by corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He said, Him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was sinless from start to finish. His virtuous life, unparalleled. And then I think about his vicarious death. You see, I believe in the vicarious death of Jesus. That Jesus came to earth to die 
for my sins. And not just my sin, but the sins of the human family. Over and over again, the Bible talks about the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross for us. Did you know that Jesus suffered in his body for you? Again, going back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter said that Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. The idea is that Jesus was nailed to a cross for my sins. He suffered immensely in the human body designed for him. Read sometime this week. Matthew's account. I would encourage you to read not just Matthew's account, but read all four gospel narratives of the death of Jesus. Jesus experienced excruciating pain for our sins. Matthew said that he was scourged. The scourge would have been enough to kill a man. Jesus was slapped, beaten, as we would say, unmercifully. But why? For our sins. I believe that. The Bible says Christ died for our sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Personally speaking, he died for my sins and your sins. I believe that. Not only did Jesus suffer in his body, but the Bible says he shed his blood for us. Think about all the animal sacrifices that were offered beginning back during the days of the patriarchs. And then we transition into the Mosaic dispensation. And again, animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice offered on behalf of the people. And yet those sacrifices, as the Hebrew writer said, could never take away sins. But Jesus shed his blood so that we might enjoy forgiveness or redemption in the absolute sense. All of the sacrifices that were offered under the old covenant and during the patriarchal period, all of those blood sacrifices anticipated the coming of Jesus. When Jesus came and shed his blood, we were said to be redeemed, weren't we? We were said to enjoy the blessings of redemption. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. He said, it's in him or in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. John would write in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. The blood of Jesus is what washes away, cleanses every sin in my life and in your life. Do you remember when Jesus 
observed the Passover with his disciples. And on that occasion, he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, that memorial feast, the bread symbolizing his body, the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood that was shed for the remission of sins, according to Matthew chapter 26. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come again. The idea is that when we partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, we bring to memory the body that was given for us, the blood that was shed for our sins. By the way, where did Jesus, where did Jesus shed his blood? In death. John 19, 34. Jesus, while hanging upon the cross, had his side pierced by a Roman soldier. We know that Jesus died upon that cross, didn't he? How then do we appropriate his blood today? How can I enjoy the benefits of the blessings of the blood of Jesus that washes away all my sins? I've got to go where it was shed, don't I? So the only way that I can enjoy the benefits of the blessings of his blood is to be baptized into Christ. You see, Paul taught in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When I'm baptized into Christ, and my baptism is preceded by faith in Christ, repentance of sin, and confession of his name, then I contact that blood, that blood that was shed on Calvary for my sins and your sins. Listen, if you would, to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. He said, God spared not his own son. When I think about what God through Christ has done for us as members of the human family, I stand in awe. We ought to stand in awe. So I believe in the vicarious death of Jesus. I also believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The beauty of scripture is the beauty of the story of Christ is reflected in the fact that his ministry, his work, his service for God on behalf of the human family did not end in a tomb, did it? Do you remember Jesus said in John chapter 2 at the onset of his ministry, destroy this temple and in Three days I will raise it up. The Jews thought he was talking about the temple. Not the temple of his body, but that, that physical structure in Jerusalem. Jesus was talking about his body. There are some things that we ought to appreciate about the resurrection. When I say that I believe in the res resurrection of Jesus Christ... I'm saying that I believe in one of the cardinal doctrines of the New Testament. Did you know that Christianity stands or falls on the basis of whether or not the resurrection is true? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, he said our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, and he said we are still in sin. The bottom line is, if the resurrection is not true, 
we might as well quit. Close up shop and go home. The fact of the matter is, it authenticates Christianity. And let me just say this. I want to encourage you this week to read the book of Acts. Maybe just read the first four chapters of Acts. And note if you would, the apostles preaching on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, those in the first century, many thought that Jesus was a deceiver, didn't they? They secured his tomb in an effort to thwart the quote-unquote potential resurrection. Well, Jesus came forth from the grave, didn't he? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 that he showed himself alive for the space of 40 days by many infallible proofs. Some 500 witnesses saw Jesus. And then we talk about the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. So why do I mention the book of Acts? Because in Acts chapters 1 through 4, you have the ascension of Jesus and then the birth of the church, the infancy of the church, which led to the eventual growth of the church. But inherent in all of that, the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter stood before that multitude of people in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day, he said, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by many wonders and miracles and signs which God did by him in your midst. He said, you have taken him by lawless hands, have crucified and slain. But then he said, whom God raised up. Right out of the box, Peter and the apostles preached the resurrected Christ. In chapter 3, verse 15, a record of Peter's second sermon. Peter acknowledged the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. In chapter 4, verse 2, the Bible says they preached in Jesus the resurrection. I want to ask you a question. Do you really think the apostles would have been willing to suffer, bleed, and die for a hoax? For something that never occurred? Not a chance. Not one chance. Let me tell you what. These guys believe that Jesus died and rose again. And I believe it too. I've never seen that empty tomb. I wasn't there with Peter and John. I wasn't present with some of the women that followed Jesus. I did not hear that angel Ask the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Oh, but I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. So, it authenticates the Christian religion. Furthermore, it is proof positive that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, it's proof positive that he is who he claimed to be. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Bible says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul said in Romans 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised for our justification. The resurrection is vital to the Christian religion. So it's something that I most surely believe. And I would hope and pray that you do as well. I want to just make mention of this fact very quickly. During the course of, well, during the course of my ministry, I'm not sure how many open graves I have stood at the side of. Sometimes I think back and wish I had kept a record. I just didn't think about it or didn't care to do it. But I have, I have stood at the side of so many open graves. Young people, middle-aged people, and old people. Death is a reality. But invariably, when I stand at the side of an open grave, particularly when that person is a Christian, I often read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reminding those loved ones that have been left behind. That yes, we're committing this body to the heart of the earth. But that same body that is being placed in the heart of the ground will one day come forth. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, the hour is coming when all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So yes, I've had a part in way too many funerals. Don't get me wrong, it's an honor to participate or to conduct a funeral service. But at the same time, it's hard. Because you are saying goodbye to somebody that you love. But the flip side of it is, there's a sense of joy in knowing that one day we'll be together again. We will be reunited. And to me, that's something that, I mean, when I think about heaven and all the great blessings associated with heaven, to me, the thing that really just thrills my soul is to think about being with people that I have known and loved down through the years. Some of those folks I've said goodbye, I said goodbye to a long, long time ago. But through the eye of faith, I believe I will see them again. So, the resurrection. And then finally, I would suggest that I believe that Jesus will come again. 
The same Jesus that walked the dusty streets of Palestine will one day come again. I will hear the second advent of Jesus and I will see him when he comes. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in reference to the coming of Jesus he said he will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God the dead in Christ shall rise. No I've never heard the voice of an archangel I've never heard a trumpet of God, but I believe that one day I will. Furthermore, I believe that one day when the Son of God comes with all his holy angels, I'll see him. Because John said, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. To know that one day we'll hear him and we'll see him. Those are some things that I believe with all of my heart. I close tonight by asking this question to you. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he lived, died, and rose again? If your answer is yes, my second question is, are you a Christian? If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to come to Christ, to come to him tonight. Believing everything that the Bible says about him is true. Understanding that when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, every sin is washed away. And God will put you in his church or in the kingdom of God. And to know that you'll be numbered among the redeemed, the saved, the cleansed. So that when Jesus comes, you're ready. If you're here tonight and you are not what you ought to be as a child of God, could we pray with you and for you? One of the great blessings of, of being a member of the church and being a member of the family of God is that we can pray for one another. We can encourage one another. It may be that maybe your life's gotten off track. You know, John said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So tonight, if you're not a Christian, do what they did on Pentecost Day. If you are a Christian and your life's not what it ought to be, won't you come home as we stand and sing?